The Sisu Way with Scott McGee, episode 38, Octa Non Verba. The most beautiful people are those that have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have still found their way out of the depths. These people have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This is The Sisu Way, a show about grit, character, gratitude, service, and what it means to choose strength. I'm Scott McGee, a mindful warrior on a path of gratitude and service who loves to connect with unconquerable souls. Talking to someone with an open mind is one of my favorite things because there's never an end to what you can talk about and learn. There is something special about sitting and actually having a conversation with someone who can be in the moment without judgment committed to seeking understanding. And that is something that happened on this episode with my friend Marcus Aurelius Anderson on his new podcast, Octanon Verba. The format is different than previous episodes of the CCUA because Marcus and I agreed to release this interview in which I was a guest on his podcast on both platforms. Part of the reason I considered doing this was the fact that I have not released an episode in past six months for a variety of reasons I will get into here in a second, but I also realized I have not done many episodes where I was a guest or an about me episode or anything along those lines, and maybe I will in the future. On this episode, we talk about the origins of the CC way, law enforcement, life, philosophy, culture, and more topics I hope you find worthwhile of your time and attention. As a reminder, I committed to only recording podcast episodes for the CCUA Way when I had a burning desire to do so, and when it was not something I felt stressed about or got in the way of my other commitments in life. I also committed to only doing in-person interviews, and COVID has made that a challenge. So COVID, coupled with my family, kids, uh, always being home, homeschool, homeschooling, work, protests, riots, civil unrest, all, all of these things has placed my attention on making sure my uh, primary duties are taken care of. So when an opportunity arose to be on Marcus's podcast as a guest via Zoom, I agreed that it was something that I could manage and Marcus is someone I deeply respect. If you don't know, Marcus was my guest on the CC Way on episode 34, Adversity is a Gift. If you find the topics interesting and you want to hear more about any of them or have questions, please let me know. You can find me at Scott McGee on Instagram and at the Sisu way. You guys can always um, hit me up there or shoot me a DM and uh, I, I try to respond as fast as I possibly can. Everyone, uh, I always say this is a we thing, not a me thing. So much love, respect and gratitude for your time I humbly thank you for your attention. Here is Marcus. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what someone truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and today's guest lives in the Sisu way, which shares the ethos of octa non verba. Scott McGee is a mindful warrior on a path of service and gratitude. He is the founder and podcast host of The Sisu Way, which we will talk about at length in this podcast. He also happens to be a 15-year policeman and SWAT team member in Southern California. Now, Scott believes that health is wealth, 
the vulnerability of strength and that strength is a choice. He believes that you are the master of your fate, that you are the captain of your soul, and that you should get up strong and be unconquerable. Welcome for the show today, Scott. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be able to reciprocate. You have an amazing studio out there in California. I had the honor of being able to go out there and be interviewed by you on your podcast, The Sisu Way. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you very much, sir. Um, thank you for that beautiful introduction, by the way. Oh, I was getting nervous when I hear those because it's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like just talking about me. But um, but then again, like, and as we'll talk, uh, and as you know, introductions are are part of it, and and we are more than our resumes, and we are what we've overcome. That's it, and the the resume is just enough to give us sort of a snapshot in time, and that gives the listener an idea of what they're going to be in for. But what's beautiful about what you do, and and what I was talking about before is that I've met so many people that have been in military or law enforcement or, or any kind of, you know, high stakes environments. And there are some of them that can take the lessons that they learn from hardships and they can use that to sort of catapult them to a higher level. And they will use that to make them more developed in other areas, more multifaceted. And then some that just try to bear the burden and lots of times they become crushed by it. So, what we're talking about today will will have a lot more. It's going to have all these components, but that's what I love because you you like to accent some of those other areas. Because if I'm just telling you, you know, get it out and drive on and push on, and adversity is a gift, there is a time for that. But there are also times when we have to be aware of these other things. And you made a comment. I was in uh, Los Angeles last year. We did Murph together with everybody at Kenny Kane's at uh, Los Angeles uh, CrossFit, Josh Montz, an incredible group of people out there, just great camaraderie, great energy, very powerful to be a part of that. And I remember you making a comment that even when you're in combat, even if you're trying to stop a bad guy, that you in your mind still have this running idea of empathy, understanding that this person has gone through something that put them in the position that they are right now, which may be the position where you're trying to cuff them and stop them from hurting somebody else. And I think that's so powerful because sometimes people just see us like, like you were mentioning that this is a policeman or that this is a, a firefighter or that this is a, a special forces person or this is a, a, a podcast host. And there is much more to that. So can you tell me kind of how you were able to get to that place? Because a lot of people just think, you know, we're big brutes or this person is a, a police officer and that they must just have this single dimensional kind of attitude. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a lot of areas to talk about there. Um, let me figure out how to best unpack it. Cause even if you break it down in, in law enforcement, most human beings that are, that are come from the community want to get into the job because they want to serve their community and they want to help people. So there's that, there's that very pure feeling of service. And then once they get involved in the process, um, you know, the hiring process is stressful. The academy is stressful. The, the field training program is stressful. You're still on probation. Um, a lot of stressful pieces go on. And then you get out in the field and you still are trying to, figure out how to navigate that chaotic scene. And so part of, um, I don't say like part of the, the culture or, or some things that are measured 
are like how many calls you went to, how many arrests you have, how many citations you have, how many field interview cards you have. These are all things that are measurable. And so if you're measurable, then you can kind of compare that to everyone else. Small example, like if you're doing a yearly evaluation on someone and they, they have like no arrests, you know, it's kind of like, hey, what's going on here? Now, keep in mind there's no quotas, so that's not a thing. It's just a measuring tool. And so if that's what kind of is the measuring tool, you, you, that's what you end up trying to do. You, you start making an impact out there through those things that are trackable. Well, at some point in time, um, I kind of figured out where there's more to the story here. Because if someone has an issue, even if someone has a, a drug problem, them just getting caught, arrested, and put in a jail cell, maybe that's not necessarily the answer. It's part of it, like, like that's part of it, like we're like hall bosses of society or society's parents. But there's a whole other part of recovering the human being that's in that position. And so another example um, is if somebody, take a 20 year old kid is out and he just broke into somebody's house and scared the residents, they freaked out, they locked themselves in the bedroom and that person runs out with a purse. And then we, and then we catch up to them. Now that particular act isn't very good. You know, technically that's, you might fall under the whole idea that that is a bad guy. But if you, if you were like really asked, like, is this a bad person? And what's going on with this person? Uh, do they, like, what was their childhood like? Did they grow up on the floor? Did they grow up, like, did mom use drugs when they were, she was pregnant? Did that kid get abused at some point? Did he have the opportunity to play sports? Did he have decent food? Like, there's all kinds of things that go into this, like, is he being pressured by the local gang in his neighborhood to do that? There's so many things that come into play. So then when he comes there, I don't know, does law enforcement need to victimize that human being even more? And so this is where, like, unfortunately, yeah, there, there is a consequence for that action, but at least having empathy that that human being can be recovered and still have some respect. So that's part of, part of that, you know, there's a whole, whole element of there. And, and where a human being like me learns that stuff is, because not everyone's equally empathetic, empathetic, you know, there's, and I've learned that, that, you know, improving one's character over time is, is you know, it takes time. It's, there's progress there and it, and it grows and you keep growing and growing and growing. And then there's certain moments that you have a massive amount of growth. And as you know, most of those times are through something traumatic. And then it depends how you use those opportunities. See, and I said that word opportunity because everything is an opportunity, right? Whatever external happens, if, if a human views it as an opportunity, then you can focus on the lesson and you can grow. Or, as you know, you can focus on the pain and suffer. You can totally so, suffer, yeah. Yeah, over, so that's kind of like, so, yeah. And even having, and even learning that and then using events. So not only just events and professional, but um, with life experience over time and going through my own you know, personal traumas and suffering and, you know, that type of life experience has taught me 
to treat a whole, whole human being and understand that what, they, what is in front of me isn't all that they are. You know, everyone's struggling. You know, the struggle is universal. You know, we all have our, our stories are unique, but the struggle is universal. Absolutely. It's part it's of the human condition. Yeah. And then seeking and, and having the ability to understand that and know that that is our shared humanity. And so I have empathy for that. And there's some people that because they may not have the same mentality or they haven't been through the same experience or they haven't been able to develop empathy. I've had some people that have told me, they said, well, if you're going into combat like that, or if you're going into adversity like that, there's a part of you that will subconsciously hold back. Maybe you're not able to commit hundred percent and that can be dangerous. Does that hold truth with you or is that just um, their limited mentality? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, I think a fair question. Um, and that's kind of where the whole discussion between the guardian and the warrior mindset, if, if to go back and forth between those, but like these, there's a reason I'm not wearing a shirt. It's even on the back of my phone here, my, my sword here that's wrapped with an olive branch. And if you, so the way I look, I have more than one tool, right? There's a tool that's used to, to improve a situation, whatever that situation is. And so, um, and you've been here, you've seen my Excalibur sword and the meaning there. And so that image that I have, I have made it into a strength as a choice shirt. And so the meaning that I have with that is that it, it takes strength to wield a sword. It takes strength, and the metaphor there, it takes strength to decide to fight. Whatever that is, it, you could be, I'm, it takes strength to fight back against uh, a workout. It takes strength to keep running in Murph when you're in pain. It takes strength to fight cancer. It takes, you know, whatever it is is a battle that you're in, that takes strength. So it takes strength to wield a sword, but it also takes strength to know when not to. And that, to me, is like the full filling up the full sphere of what a guardian or a warrior is. So in, in, in a moment's notice, I can, it's easy. Like I can show empathy and then back off and, and like draw my rifle. Like it's not, this is, it's not like I'm stuck in that one area and I'm skilled and I still train in all the, in all the, uh, the other side of the coin, you know, there's action and there's non-action. It's the same, the same coin, two different sides. Well, and I believe that that's a great thing to look at because if I'm an officer and I am looking at escalation of violence or de-escalation and I have a taser and I have a baton and I have pepper spray and then I have my sidearm, if I don't have other skills like you're saying, if I am not able to deploy empathy, if I'm not able to look at that and say, this is not a lethal force situation, I should go to this particular tool, this particular weapon, so to speak, then that allows me to be fluent in that. But if I am not skilled to defend myself or somebody else, if I don't have either the warrior skill set or even the guardian skill set, my default is going to be, I'm in danger, I'm scared, I'm going to draw my weapon. And now there's only one answer here, or there's only one potential answer, which is not always the right answer. And it's yeah, so easy. Yeah. It's so easy for people to look after the fact and Monday morning quarterback, anybody 
and we yeah. see it all the time. So it's easy for somebody to say, oh, well, you know, you should have done this, but they're not the ones that are in the arena. They're not the ones that are in the ring. Yeah. They're not under the duress. And I think that that's yeah. something that people overlook. So even that, even those skill sets, uh, you, you have to out train your anxiety. You have to out train your insecurities in them. So you're confident in them. And even like, you know, the ability to communicate with somebody and is a skill set, like, you know, verbal judo, you've heard that before. Uh, but that is a tactic. That's a skill to deescalate a situation. And, and as you know, if you can, if you can win a battle without ever having to fight, then that's the ultimate goal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Bruce Lee. It's the art of war learning to mm -hmm. fight without fighting. And for those that don't know you or see you, you're a, a not a small person. You're in great shape. You're what you're six, two, six, two, six, two, uh, till probably two ten right now. So you're physically imposing. So I, again, having that presence that alone, if you know how to wield it properly, you can deescalate a lot of things and, and stop it. But at the same time, there are advantages and disadvantages to anything. So for some people, if they see you show up on the scene and you've got all your gear on and you're this big person with a shaved head, that may actually trigger some of them to think, you know what, I'm going to have to, you know, click this up a notch or what have you. And I think that, I mean, obviously you're aware of that because you've had to deal with it for the last, well, your entire life, but especially professionally, how are you, do you go into the situation like you're saying, with uh, with that verbal judo in, in, in mind so that you don't necessarily have to come to some sort of physical altercation to the best of your ability? Oh, yeah. I, like, do not want to get in fights. I don't want to chase people. In fact, I don't even want to go to calls. Like, if I could just hang out and drink coffee and, like, relax, like, that'd be great. You know, just, just that and, and, like, the absence of crime is the ultimate goal of law enforcement. And there's, there's like little moments where there isn't any reported crimes. And so we don't, we like, don't say anything, you know, shh. And then of course that doesn't last. So just going, and this is a perspective, whenever we go somewhere, it's because somebody's calling for help. We don't just like go places, you know, unless it's like a traffic stop or something like that. But whenever we're driving fast, it's because someone's calling for help. So somebody, and I don't know if you've ever called 911 before, but just that act of picking up a phone and dialing 911, that potentially could be the worst moment or day of that person's life. That's a big deal. And so whenever, again, to reiterate, we are brought to places because someone's calling for help. So I keep in mind, and, and when I say I, there's a ton of people like me and, and even better, um, that keep, like, what kind of person would you want coming to that scene? Like if your mom or brother or sister or wife called, like who do you want coming to the scene? So that's, that's something that is a consideration. And then to get there and not have to get into anything physical is the goal. And even getting people to comply is the goal. Like, hey man, like you just threw your wife down the stairs. Kind of happy. You're going to be arrested right now. Can you please just put your hands behind your back? We're going to place handcuffs. This is a process. And then we're going to go to the car and then we're going to the station and you get booked. But how often do you think that happens? You know, 
So, like even me, and I use the example, like if you were to show up, you're the, you're the patrol officer and you know that I just beat up my wife in front of my kids and you can't just, you can't leave. The state says that you can't leave that situation. And then you go to arrest, ask me to, to turn around, spread my feet, put my hands behind my back and I'm just, no. No. In fact, and I'm going to throw all the customers at you. No. And I started loosening up my arms. Then what? Like, how, how do you end that peacefully? So there's still an opportunity there, by the way, to, to end it peacefully. And I, and I share that story because ultimately we're not trying to get into anything physical. There's a lot of danger there. Risk of injury. There's diseases that we deal with. There's spending time at the hospital, it's just liability. But sometimes, sometimes police work isn't pretty, you know, and that's what society expects of us. So even in those situations, so if I get there, I'm aware that physically fit is a factor. I'm aware that uniform appearance is a factor. So I keep, I keep everything sharp. My gear is shiny, my boots are polished. Um, just so it gives you appearance that if someone was thinking about potentially running, fighting, trying to hurt anybody, it's kind of like, well, eh, maybe not today. And I take pride in just the, the ability to wear that uniform on my skin and wear the badge. To me, that is a complete honor. And so I like I'm trying to honor the uniform and honor the profession and honor the public. Right. You it's, hold yourself to a very high standard. Yeah. And so doing. Yeah. And then uh, I've also learned the skills that in that position to show people um, empathy and validate their feelings. Even if it's something really ridiculous, like my neighbor's TV is too loud. You have to do something about it. That happens. Trust me. Like, you know, we get, I got called to a loud squirrel one time. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> what? A loud squirrel? Yeah, did you take yeah. him? In, did you take the squirrel into custody and take his nuts from him and everything? Man, I did. It's, it, well, here's the thing. That was a great opportunity for me to connect with that person. Yeah. So that human that was calling for help. Like we talked and, and set them set stuff up. I gave an animal control number. Like I made that every is an opportunity for a public, uh, positive contact. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of my judgments of what they are calling for help. And that's an important thing. Like someone's calling for help, not to judge that. Yeah. And, and to do our best with it. Well, and like you said, there's probably a lot of other things, again, if we're able to have that ability to stand back, because where you're at, like like I said on our interview, emotions assassinate the truth. Because when you're in the heat of it, your emotions are very high and everything's volatile. So to that person, again, that was something that it was so stressful to them that they had to call somebody and there's nobody else in their mind that they can call that's going to make a, that happen. But that shows that there's a lot of other stuff that's either has gone on in their life is currently going on in their life, you know, stress, trauma, anxiety, fear, whatever the case may be. And to come back to your point, I have a lot of law enforcement enforcement friends. And one of them was talking about a study where they were saying that if you are polished and you are squared away and you are professional, that person is less likely, like you said, to act out. But if I'm, if my guts over my belt and I've got, 
you know, donut residue on me and a coffee stain and I'm not looking around, then that person may think, well, I may have an opportunity to, to punch this person or run or to outrun this person because there's no way they can get to me. And I think that that's, again, that's a, that's a physical deterrent just in your physicality, but also in the mentality that you have, which can be a deterrent as well, because that follows through into what you're doing and that comes out in your actions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and over time I've gotten better with that. Even the even talking to, to, you know, a potential suspect or somebody and really to talk to them as a human, not as, you know, said bad guy that just did an act like, yeah. And that helps because you're still validating them. They, they have their own perspective. doesn't mean I have to, I agree with it, but you know, it builds, builds some relationship with them, even though potentially arresting them. And that takes time. And then also learning to deescalate um, a witness or a victim mm-hmm. and ensuring them that, Hey, you know, doing some breath things and letting them know they're safe. They're okay. That we're here. We're going to help them. That's another important factor of this. And people forget, um, and at least with law enforcement, we take the heat and the attention. Um, but the people behind the 911 calls are getting victimized a lot and their lives are completely altered by the actions of other people. And so, like I said earlier, we go to things because somebody's calling for us. Somebody needs us. Somebody's been victimized. And we go to help them. But they're kind of like, like in the background of things. Like even some of the, like most of like the national, um, like the, the popular stuff on the, on the quote unquote media, the, it, like those scenes, somebody called for help and brought law enforcement there. You know, it's like, we didn't just magically appear, but that's not part of the narrative. No, not at all. And so there is, you're gone, you've gone to a call and something happens and now you're home safe and the, whoever the perpetrator has been put in jail and the other people that called you are safe. Now what, how, how as an officer are you able to deal with that sort of that hardship, that, that stress are, are you given, are you told to do certain things to, to help you do that? Or is that something that you have to, because that's a lot of pressure. I mean, that's day in, day out. That doesn't just go away. That's Monday, you know, and then yep. you have the rest of your shifts to, to deal with. That's not only Monday. That could be like the first call on Monday. Exactly. And you've got the other 12 hours to go, right? Yeah. So, and this is a, a, a line of questioning I asked law enforcement. So is any law enforcement officers um, or even military um, listening, they can answer these questions. And then, and then like you, even you can answer this. Like did uh, your profession teach you how to draw your sidearm from your holster? Like, do you know how to do that? Do you know how to come up on target? Like, do you know how to clear a stovepipe mal- uh, malfunction? How do you cope with stress? Yeah. So that, that transition, most of the time, when I ask someone how to clear a stovepipe malfunction, and then for people that aren't familiar with, with, uh, with pistols, a round or a, quote, a bullet has a shell casing, and 
and and the, the the part of the bullet that is the projectile. Let's make it simple here. So when the round goes off, the slide pulls back to eject a shell casing. Well, sometimes the shell casing gets stuck when the slide moves forward. So the gun is now malfunction; it's not working, and there's a shell casing stuck in the slide pointing upward. So that's just what I'm talking about. Well, quickly, like law enforcement or military, everybody knows fast with 100% knows how to clear that. And quickly, how do you clear a stove pipe? Oh, you know, tap a rack, whatever, you know. Yeah, slap rack, yep. But I've never heard of that happening. I've never, I, don't, I, I haven't heard of one like shooting or any dangerous situation where that happened. So I don't even know what the odds of that happening are. It's like point zero 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 one. But everybody knows how to do it, and they know the answer right away. So when I say, how do you cope with stress, most of the time, there's a delay. It's usually a thinking pause, delay, quiet. So right away, that's wrong. That's wrong. But you can't answer how to clear a stovepipe with immediate 100% accuracy with no chance of it actually happening in real life that I've heard of versus the thing that is going to happen with 100% accuracy. So we are going to, so what do you think the other answers are? Generally it's two. To deal with, to deal with the- Like how do you cope with stress? Like usually there's, there's the delay. Right. And the top two answers I get, drinking, and then physical fitness. Which physical fitness is great. Um, it is part of it. But physical fitness training and workouts by its very nature are still a sympathetic response. Right. And, and so, when it, yeah, and, and we'll, maybe we'll have time to break this down. But yeah, stress. You're still getting fight or flight. You're taking a pre-workout. You're cranking up your music. and It's like you're not down-regulating yourself. It's a component of your overall wellness, yes. But um, it has nothing to do with the actual moment either, being in the moment. Uh, those are the most popular answers. Obviously, drinking is a problem. So if you break down um, law enforcement, or and it's not, and, and when I say law enforcement, I hope everyone knows it's not. I'm speaking just from my particular profession, but it's my guess is it's going to be the same in the military and same in most people's professions. But specifically, um, like when we talk about officer safety or human safety or human wellness. In law enforcement, the suicide rate is twice as high as officers killed in the line of duty. So if you gather up all the officers that are killed in the line of duty, the suicide rate is double that. So, and then let's just say you take, take that high number and then you break it down into what else basically uh, or literally kills us. Diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular disease, mix in some depression, alcoholism, uh, bad relationships, divorce, you know, all, all of these things, what, there's a common thread here with all of them. Coping with stress and having a, the skill set to do that. Now, obviously some stuff is going to be genetic. I get it. Like there's, but there's still things that you can do for those. Like it's not a, it's not like a, not necessarily always the death sentence, your genetics. Yeah. Sometimes yes, but you get my point. So if you have all these things that are very, very 
dangerous and literally killing us and causing us poor health and in turn making us also make bad decisions while on duty. To me, there's no bigger officer safety issue. Yet we're not teaching ourselves how to do it. There's no, we're not, we're not teaching ourselves how to cope with acute and chronic stress and trauma. And it's really simple, like the ability to teach the self-awareness of it and then some self-regulation skills. And I, and I know you know this, but it's just, it, it's almost like heartbreaking for me because you see it. It's like, imagine seeing a bunch of people um, and, and they're, they're unhealthy, they're having diabetic issues, they're overweight, um, having trouble breathing while walking upstairs. Yet all they eat is like McDonald's, Jack in the Box, Carl's Jr. But they have no idea that that stuff is bad for them. That's kind of the way I look at it. It's like we got to teach ourselves that that kind of food is not good for them, that there's other options available. So that's a big component, right? And I, and I don't know how much time I want to talk about even breaking that down, but well, I, th I think that it's, it's powerful because what you're saying is about physical stress and like true stress from being in combat. But a lot of people, we, when you were talking about sympathetic and parasympathetic, there's a lot of people now because they have a sedentary lifestyle, they cannot differentiate between a true threat and a person who cuts them off in traffic or a person who's actually trying to hurt them and a disagreement with a spouse or a coworker. So to them, the stress is still there. It's still a sympathetic situation. They are still in a highly adrenal state. Yep. So now they are unable to deregulate. I mean, to deescalate. So that anxiety, the, the semantics of how it gets there doesn't matter. It's still anxiety. And for that person, it can still be in their mind, almost life or death. So what you're talking about can help anybody, whether they be in a stressful environment, in a relationship or in a job, or literally have their life on the line every day like you do. So I think it's so important. Yeah, there's a lot of cues for that. A lot of, a lot of uh, symptoms that arise. One, the traffic one is great. Like if you get cut off in traffic and you, get, and you start cussing out loud, that's a, that's a sign that you need to work on some deregulation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because it's one, it's okay. Like it's okay. Unless that person like, almost like kills you. Okay. Like, but even the person that moves over in front of you, and this is a little little skill set that I've like that um, that I've started using that's helped me with my own emotional health is to um, put love into that person. Like put love places. So if someone cuts off and this is a practice, again, all this stuff is a practice because it's not perfect. If someone merges into the lane in front of me, like last minute on the freeway or whatever, I'll put love into that car and be like, oh man, they must be under a lot of stress. They're probably got to deal with a lot of kids that are stressed out. Their kid might be unhealthy. They're late for their doctor's appointment. Something. Because by putting love out there, man, like that just makes, one, makes me feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. And now that is not injuring my internal system. I got enough stuff to go to deal with. I don't, it doesn't need to be always be self-inflicted. That is still an external event that doesn't need to have control of my internal environment. And again, that takes practice. You know, external versus internal. Um, but understanding that skill set. Oh, another cue, um, people sighing a lot, you know, this right here, <sighs> like if you see somebody doing that a whole bunch, check on them. But even that, let's break that down. What's a sigh? 
usually, you know, their cup of their, their stress cup is runneth over. That's why their body is dumping that, that energy per se. What's a sigh? It's a one part inhale to a two part exhale coupled with um, a grunt or noise because it stimulates your vagus nerve which help you shift to a parasympathetic state. That's what your body is naturally doing. But you can have awareness of that, self-awareness of that and understand what it does to your system and then do it yourself on purpose to regulate. Um, and I tell people in order to uh, regulate your emotions, you have to stabilize your attention. Mm. And that could be something as simple as you know, staring at a leaf or, or for me lately playing the ukulele or bringing your mind um, into your breath. And I bring that part up because this is a simple tactic. The, the one part inhale to a two part exhale. I call it the one, two breath. Even understanding breathing is important, right? Most people say, take a deep breath. But what does that mean exactly? Do I breathe in all like, <gasps> like, did I just do a deep breath right there? But, like, but really, I just took a panic breath. It's an agonal breathing. Like that's, if, you, if you jump out and scare somebody, that's what they do. That's a sympathetic response. So that, and through the mouth. So understanding that breathing through your mouth is still a sympathetic, well, even, I don't know, I keep saying these words, uh, sympathetic is like the fight or flight response. Right, yes, parasympathetic, correct. Right, the rest, the rest, and relaxed state. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff I should have probably broke down earlier, but sympathetic fight or flight, parasympathetic is like Hawaii mode almost. Yeah, relaxed island mode. Yep. And so, breathing through the mouth is a sympathetic response, and then the inhale is a sympathetic response. The part, the cycle that is the downshift, the parasympathetic, is tied to the exhale. So I think when people are saying take a deep breath or they're really meaning take a long, smooth uh, exhale through your nose. That's, that's actually where it's at. And the one, two breath is the, is a one part inhale to two part exhale. So whether that's a four count inhale through your nose and an eight count exhale through your nose. And then you can do that on repeat. Generally speaking, if everyone paused for a second and did one of those breaths, they're going to be more relaxed. They might even be a little bit more sleepy. Just takes one breath. One. And then, and then you can pile on with each, each breath. Relax your, relax your temples on the exhale. Relax your ears on the exhale. Relax your shoulders on the exhale. Like the top of your scalp. Like we carry all kinds of tension and stress all over our bodies. And even within 30 seconds, you know, really, in one breath, you can completely change the chemistry of your body and downshift. And then look at that. Now you're emotionally sober and can make a good decision. So that is one skill. Like, well, the one, two breath, even just that right there. Like, we're not taught that. And it trips me out. And that's just one style of breathing. Even just bringing your mind to your breath and understanding that what that does for your emotions is important. Yeah, the mindset is, is key and again, what we give that consciousness to is what we're going to, it's we're putting fuel on a fire. So we can either feed the things that are positive, or again, we can catastrophize everything that happens and then go into this kind of victim mentality, which this keeps us stunned. And it keeps us continually in this loop where nothing's good enough. Nobody loves me. I'm, 
you know, I, I'm a failure in all these capacities. And again, th that's a tipping point, right? That, that can be the tip of depression. That can be the tip of anger and all these things, again, accumulate from day to day, the, the minutia of day to day or the micro traumas that accumulate. And yeah. it's a, it's a war of attrition many times. And just like the point you made, it's the same thing with veterans. We're finding, you know, 22 is the, the standard number that they're talking about, but veterans are 22 veterans commit suicide daily. And that's much more than what people that are dying in combat is. So yeah. And man, I, I'm like trying not to get pissed off about it because there's simple things that we can be doing from the very beginning to teach that. Like, why are we not doing that? And so you take a human, you know, I talked about earlier, you take a human being that applies for a law enforcement job. And that usually is like a nine month process and it's, and it's stressful. You go through oral panel interviews, you go through background interviews, you take a polygraph. These are all things that are freaking you out. Um, and then you finally get a job and you get, you, you know, in the academy, you gotta figure out how to put on your uniform and where does my button go? And like, how do I put my belt together? And where do I stand? What time do I get there? Like, how do I, do I scream at everybody? Like, and some people, it's the first time they've really been yelled at in their life. You know, they might not have played sports, you know, which happens, you know, like, yeah. Um, and then you have like all this stuff to memorize, these speeches to memorize, and you have like homework to do. Uh, it's a very stressful environment. And then you have, on top of that, you have the physical fitness component of it, getting yelled at and doing push-ups and the exercises and the runs. And, and then you take that human being, um, then they have to rush home in traffic and uh, that can be stressful. They're trying to hurry. They got to get the dry cleaners. And then they haven't even gotten into the stress of the family life yet. Right. And everyone has their own family situation. They could be home with kids and they're stressing out about, do I study? Do I spend time with my kids? Or like, how do I, how do I navigate all that? Stress, stress, stress. And then you got to set the alarm and the alarm cranks you up and then you're rushing to get ready. And like, do I have everything? And then you're, traffic and you're there so the cycle keeps going and then eventually you get to the police department and then it's stressful again again like you go to your locker like where do i stand what time should i be in a locker room do i talk to people am i allowed to make eye contact with the senior officers like like the social stress right and then i'm getting evaluated i'm getting graded on everything i do and then i'm trying to figure out how to how do i drive this police car with all these gadgets and gizmos and pay attention to the com computer the radio listening to to uh dispatch and understanding where all the officers are and then how do I even get to the location I'm being sent to how fast do I drive what's the crime what things do I have to ask like do I have resources who's available all these things are happening and you're getting graded on it all it's stressful and the thing is that human being still hasn't even gotten into the stress and trauma of the calls Right. That's just the background that's going on. It has nothing to that's do like with the, the organizational the, stress. Yeah. It's like, has nothing to do with the physicality, the training, the tactics that you have to learn. And again, what you're describing, 90% of what you're learning, especially in the academy is paperwork, semantics, protocols, but that 10% that literally can save yours or somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not a whole lot of time for that. Yeah. Well, and then on just, top of that, obviously you're learning, uh, uh, how to drive again, you go through driving training, you go through uh, defensive tactics, you go through shooting, the shotguns, the rifles, yep. the movement training, it's all of it. It's a lot. And then, then you deal with the worst parts of human behavior. And then 
you do that day in and day out, and we'll get into that part. So you have the field training program, then you're on probation for a year, and you're still really a new officer trying to figure out how to do the job. And then you're launched into this, this like cycle of dealing with everyone's problems. And then you do that for years and years and years. And at no point in time has anyone taught you how to cope with this stuff or even have the awareness of it. So in my opinion, these emotionally, emotional resilience or these, uh, you know, tactical mindfulness needs to be taught and be part of the culture in the very beginning, like repeated in academy and re re even re not just the academy, but it needs to start there. You need the culture needs to start in the very beginning. And same thing uh, with boot camps. It's not a soft thing. Like there is, a, you need to have stress inoculation. You need to yell. And people need to be put under pressure, and that pressure is nothing because you know you're not going to get hit or hurt. You know, it's not like you're just getting yelled at. You know, it's just you got to test. Okay, um, but still taught the skill set because fast forward, look what's happening. Look at all the injuries and the, the poor, even you can go back to like some of the, the poor uh, stress management and I guarantee you, we can find some bad shootings, some bad decisions, some, some bad uses of forces yeah, that cool. tie back into, did that human being have the skill set to deal with the stress and trauma of that position? And did they have the opportunity to do that? You know? Yeah. And so these tactics... And exactly. if they're unaware of that, yeah, if they're yeah, unaware of that, it's impossible for them to even get there, right? They don't even know that yep. there's a problem. They yeah. just think, oh, this is part of the job. Or you talk to somebody else, they're like, whatever, you know, I dealt with a shooting yesterday. You know, don't come to me with your problems, boohooing in your beer about having a rough day or that you got into a fight with your, your wife or your kids are upset with you. I mean, yep. it, it, and like you said, that, that, that's why when you're talking about seeing weaknesses, strength, or seeing these things this is the first step to unpacking those things. This is the first step to seeing that there's an, an issue as opposed to putting your fingers in your ears and acting like there's nothing there and you just get through the day and then yeah. you just live for the weekend where you live for that. Workout. Well, there's something to be said about that, um, about that, the culture part of that. Um, and that is like whoever decided to have a stiff upper lip and not have a, emotions, somebody decided that at some point in time and then started that was a culture that was given to you. Right. And that's, that doesn't, that's not, that's not like a scientific fact in the way it is. It's not like, it's not gravity. Like someone, you were born, but you didn't get to choose your language. Like you, and even having that awareness and how it affects, even affects the way you dream. Like the part of the world you were born into, you didn't choose. The family you were born into, you didn't choose. There's a whole bunch of stuff in our lives that we had no choice of. We were, this culture was thrust upon us. But you might have been born into a, a family of Raider fans and you're a Raider fan. Like you, that you didn't choose to be that part. Um, and so you, you kind of have to look at culture a little bit. Like, is it that, are we, is it, are we succeeding in suppressing our emotions? I'm going to say no basis off of all these suicides and uh, the other lists of health issues that I've mentioned. Yeah. But there obviously there is a time and place to compartmentalize doing a certain task. 
But having the strength and the vulnerability, like I said, to actually admit, it's not even admit, it's just take off that fake mask that you're okay and actually talking about it. And having a supportive cast around you that is in the same type of culture of like, hey man, like you, like, you dealt with a, a, the death of a two-year-old yesterday. Like how, like, how are you doing? Are you able to focus? Like, I mean, that, I can open that up a whole thing. And that's, that should be part of the culture across the board, like showing empathy and actually talking to people because we're not machines. We're not machines and that stuff can weigh on us over time and eventually could possibly lead to suicide, which I'm sure is stuff that happens. But and I say that because the, the, I dealt with the death of a two-year-old and it messed me up for a really long time because the kid looked exactly like my son at the time. Oh my God. You know, it's kind of a, I'll derail the conversation too much, but there was um, parents, they put their kid to bed, their only kid um, in his crib. And then they wake up the next morning and he's, he's uh, like purple, cold and rigid. So of course they freak out. They call the fire department. Fire department comes, they do their thing and eventually transport the kid to the hospital. At that time I was um, in detective. So we responded to anytime something like that, suspicious death, like some investigators will kind of come out and look around a little bit. So we get to the house, the parents are still at the hospital and looking in the house, um, the, there was all the same like colors and all the toys that are same as my house. But then it was also like a bunch of the plastic and little things that the paramedics take off the tools to try and save a life. So it was a little bit of like paramedic mess with that. So it was like a weird combination. And then we're there for the first time, the parents come back home. And now they're coming back home just without their son. They're coming into their home without their son. And we're there. So just that combination of noises and cries and, and stuff like is, is difficult to deal with. Um, there's, there's the sound and not just that case, but there's the sound a mother makes when, they, when she loses their child that we have to be exposed to a whole bunch. And it's not a sound that I recommend or would really like hope people hear. And those sounds, man, get stuck in our heads. Um, so then we go to the hospital to, cause we're waiting for the coroner and to do our like little, little check. Um, cause the sad part is, uh, sometimes people do weird things to kids. Sometimes people do weird things to their adults. You know, we, there's little signs we'll check like, you know, the lips, like if someone gets a pillow put over the lip, their head, like you can see on the inside of the lip. You, there's different parts, petechia in the whites of the eyes. There's like little signs that we can kind of like do a little cursory check of. Just the fact that we have to do that sucks, but that's, that's the world. So the kid's there uh, on the bed. He's got his PJ pants and he's on, on the thing, like laying back on his back with his arms, like out to the side like this. You know, like. And it looked just like my kid. And then, so we were there for like, in that room for like two hours with him, waiting for the coroner to come. So finally the coroner came um, and she did her thing and we left. 
Well, of course, now I go home and I'm with my kid and it looks, so every time for a long, for like, like two years, every time my kid like lift up his shirt and he'd say, get my belly, like just tickling, I would see the other kid. I had a hard time putting my son into his crib at night. Like I had a hard time. I was at some, I like, I had to sit and stare and watch them all night long. Cause there was, there was no sign that that was going to happen to those parents. They just put their kid in bed at night. So I would put him down in there and then like eventually like force myself to walk out of the room. And it was almost like I had forgotten how to walk. I was like, move the left foot, move the right foot. And you're just like, you obviously you can't stay up all night long and watch, watch your kid like not die. It's like a weird, weird thing. So that took a while to get over, but that's like one call. This is still one call. Wow. Fast forward like, uh, oh man, probably another year. My youngest son ends up having to get transported to the hospital. Mm. Um, this is a whole other side story. My youngest, we've had all kinds of stuff with my youngest son. So he was having trouble. His blood oxygen levels were low. He's having trouble breathing um, and some sickness. So he actually got transported from the, the pediatrician's office by ambulance to this hospital. So um, I'm working and I meet them over there. And we're like, same like room, but like a different bed like on the other side of the wall away from this room where this kid was. Oh. So I tell my wife, I'm like, um, see that room over there? That's where the kid was. I was like, I'm glad we're not in there. Freaking five minutes later, you get moved into that room. Oh. Yeah. So now my, now my kid is in the same like room in the same bed as this, this poor kid. What did that I do was like, you? ah, well, um, I, what, what ended up helping me is I stood in a different part of the room. I changed my perspective of the room. It's the best thing I could do in that moment. Technically, that room was better. It afforded some privacy, and it made my wife and son more comfortable instead of just kind of being out in the open. And so I, the best thing I could do is change. I talked about it. I told my wife about it, and I just, again, I stood on the opposite side of the room and made it visually look a little different to me. But then you carry that for a long time, and that's just one in particular call. And for a lot of us, when we go around the cities that we work, we generally have bad memories in a lot of locations. Like, oh, I remember the domestic violence here, I remember the rape here, I remember the death there, I remember the murder over there. And people tend to forget that stuff. And then, and then like, we'll go to like something terrible like that and then try and just relax and maybe finally go get a cup of coffee. And then someone makes comments to us. You can imagine all the silly comments like, oh, don't you have something better to do? Oh, is this what my tax dollars are paying for? Wow. And you just kind of look at them. Just, yeah, just, just trying to make it through this day, you know? And obviously not all calls are like that, but there, there are these calls that are very impactful. And so, and the reason I'm bringing them up is we have the physical component, right, of dealing with the internal environment, but then there's also the emotional environment. And that is a huge component of something that we need to identify, talk about, and then understand how to self-regulate or take care of them. And then not only that, be re rewarded, or have it not rewarded, but recognized that is a good thing to step forward and take care of. It's okay, like, it's okay, like, it's okay. It's okay to hurt, it's okay to cry, it's okay to be in pain, it's okay to not recover from something, 
You're not less of a man. You're not less of a woman. Take care of yourself. Those are normal human reactions to that. That's yeah. not, it's not like you said, it, it takes more, it honestly takes more courage to come forward and say, I am hurting, or I know that this happened two months ago, but I can't get this out of my mind. Or, and, and again, th- there is a stigma attached to it. That conversation is one that people don't want to have, whether it be on the outside or, or inside the profession. And if you can't have that, and just like you're saying too, I know a lot of um, law enforcement and a lot of um you know, people in the military, they don't want to talk about that with their spouse because they don't want to bring them into that. They don't want to transfer that residue onto them. They want to have that as a sacred place where they can get away from it. But yet the, the deleterious effect is still there. It's still with them. Well, yeah. So, and this is something I've learned through experience it is a couple of things. One, I don't want other people making decisions for me they're not telling me something because they're deciding to make a decision that I don't want to hear it. Like, like who am I to say my wife doesn't want to hear it? Like to at least give her the opportunity to make that decision. The other thing is like, if you don't heal, if you don't heal what hurt you, you, you'll bleed on people that didn't cut you. So even if you're trying, and I'm a complete work in progress here. I'm not perfect at this, but like if I don't take care of that or even articulate what's going on with me, then I'm still injuring that relationship yeah. or I'm being distant from my kids or I'm being distant from my wife. Like it's okay for me to say, Hey, I'm having a hard time. I'm going to go to the garage for a little while. Even that, even that, like that's a step, but it's still recognizing instead of fighting through it and then being short tempered and not paying attention and being distant. At least, at least you're allowing them in to be part of the team with you. Because we can't do this alone. I mean, I found it doesn't work. No man's an island. Nope. And if you want to continue this long term, or even, even after you, even if you're in law enforcement for a little bit and you leave, because it's the same thing, like you said, veterans come home and it's the same thing. Their, their physicality goes away. They, they get into alcohol. They get into whatever it is as a distraction. And that coping mechanism is no longer there. And now they have to figure something out yeah so even and i don't have this fully thought out and and i'm still on this path of trying to figure out like like why don't i tell my wife certain things or a lot of things rather over the years i used to just come home and not talk about my day at all like and i used to think like oh i don't want to tell her these stories because i don't want to again transfer this pain to her or have her like like, I'm like, if she knew the truth of the stuff that we deal out there, like that's going to affect her and how she sees the world. So I'm making all these decisions to protect her, but in turn, I'm potentially hurting our relationship. So I've experimented and I've talked um, with certain things with her. I've brought up things to her. Uh, and you know what, man? Like she is super quote unquote strong. Like, I don't know, our friends and family, they're our friends and family for a reason and they can cope with things pretty well and don't underestimate their ability to be emotionally resilient to those stories. And then even the, even, even if you don't need them to do anything, just to, for you to articulate and tell the, the story and emotions that you're going through is going to help you heal. Or anything is going to create a, 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 an understanding between the two of you. So 
she or he kind of gives you some space and has some understanding of why you're not being, you know, super excited about the new curtains. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It robs you of your presence. It robs you of that joy. It robs you of the capacity to communicate. This is, again, this is the anti-fragile mentality. Every time I have a disagreement with somebody, if there's somebody that I truly care about, if we can um, like clear the air and just be very honest about this is what I felt, this is what I thought you did, and this is what it meant to me. If we can do that, and then they're like, that's not at all what I intended. I, this was what was going on. Now that's an opportunity for us to get stronger. But like you're saying, if we are doing the pseudo, the, the false stoicism, where it's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna have a stiff upper lip, I'm just gonna suck it up and, and step on. Again, that, that burns everything around you. You have scorched earth by the time you figure it out. Yep. Yep. And so it's even, even, uh, uh, certain little things I've learned, uh, like when I come home, um, I don't immediately go in the house. I'll just, mm-hmm. I, I'll stay in my, like I've noticed I need like a little buffer cause even, cause even like, especially in LA you're driving and still traffic isn't really the best way to decompress. I'm getting, I've gotten better at it. Like there are, there are ways that you can, make traffic a great opportunity. Like it's a great time to listen to uh, like podcasts. You got time or listen to books on tape or listen to Ted talks, you know, it's a great opportunity. Um, again, it's an external thing. It doesn't need to control your internal environment, but understanding that, okay, I still park and I still am not going immediately into my the chaos, which is, you know, my five and seven year old and wife, like not, but when I, when I, when I go in, I'm ready to give them um, attention and presence. Because you really boil down to it, man, that is a, that's like such an invaluable currency. <laughs> and when you, you, you don't get that stuff back. It's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be here, I'm present, and I'm gonna give you my attention. And ideally undistracted. And that's another thing I'm, I'm, I'm working on, like the, the distraction part. And obviously the tie to the phone and all the other shenanigans that comes up and you know, the, the holy scroll of the social medias and, and understanding your hormonal attachment to those things. Um, but those, these are all components of where I'm like improving on and trying to do better at. And I highly recommend people figuring out what they need so they can give what, what is uh, very much needed to their loved ones. Well, and it's, it's so important because the emotion that we're trying to not experience is the one that we probably most need to experience. And then that will help pull on that thread to see where else we need some help. That's a symptomatology of this underlying issue. But uh, again, if we're not able to do that, if we're not able to communicate even with ourselves, you know, if we can't be honest with ourselves, then how in the hell are we supposed to talk to somebody else and create that sort of trust, that sort of rapport again with ourselves even, right? If, if I'm telling myself I do this and I know deep down that I'm not, or if I say that I uphold the standard and I know deep down that I'm going to fall down in the heat of battle, that's a way for me to, I'm literally just setting myself up to, to fail. Well, that is uh, such like we can, and I know we can tee off on this one on how important self-awareness, self-knowledge or knowing thyself and you've been here, you can see above me, that's what yeah. that sign is up there. And understanding that like the, our biggest enemy and, and the biggest battlefield of our life is in our own minds. So having an understanding of that and even understanding that what, like even what, what is negative thought bias? 
like people just be aware like that voice that is like that like your own self-hater is always there but it doesn't mean he needs to drive the car like put the hater in the back seat put the fear or the negative or the one that says it's okay to be lazy and not work out or whatever it is that your goals part of you is going to try and stop you it doesn't matter what it is something good or something's going to try and stop you so we've been having aware of that um I would, did I tell you a story that like my offensive line coach told, like told us when it came. So like in college, I had a, I played football and we were in camp and like we're all beat up and sore and it's hot, we're tired. There's all kinds of stuff, like a bunch of reasons to complain. If you choose, it's a great opportunity for you to choose to complain should you want to do that. And so he was telling this whole story of, um, and there will be a cuss word coming up for you, for you kids out there. But he says uh, he's giving this whole uh, story about like the voice inside your head, the little man on your shoulder that's whispering in you, like it's okay to eat that cheeseburger at twelve o'clock at night. It's okay to not work out. It's okay to, you know, even cheat on your test. Whatever it is, that little slack. He's like telling you, it's okay to be lazy. It's okay to whatever the thing, right? Uh, so he's like, sometimes you got to look over that shoulder and say, fuck you, little man. And so ever since, like, and that's what he said. He says, fuck you, little man. Now I'm in control. Like, and so ever since he said that, I'm like, yeah, sometimes you, you sometimes that's what you got to say to that, that, that little devil on your shoulder. Um, yeah, but switching gears, another thing I thought, to point out when it comes to the emotional aspect of, of a lot of the stuff that we deal with. And a lot of these things are not necessarily military and law enforcement. Like human beings, we all go through some nasty stuff. Law enforcement tends to like to, to deliberately put into a whole bunch of stuff. But there's a bunch of tactics and tools and, and things out there and people that are really good at helping people cope with stuff. And so like even uh, I think in law enforcement and the military, uh, you know, I've heard, I haven't done it yet. Maybe you have any experience or knowledge of it, but the EMDR, you've heard of EMDR, right? So uh, the eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I've heard great things about it and how it deals with, you know, especially when it comes to like specific traumatic events and, and emotionally being able to work through that and recover yourself from them. So that's a tool, you know, if anyone listening or knows somebody that is it, that's an asset out there. It's, it's a powerful asset for sure. And so from all this experience that you've had, is that what led you to trying to cultivate a philosophical notion, the ability to reframe the, the Sisu way? Because I know that it's an amalgam of, you know, everything from Zen to Stoicism to Buddhism to Taoism to anything that's functional and pragmatic. Is that what kind of led you down this path? Uh, part of it, part of it. And then, you know, even we, and everyone has their own definition, but like, what is, like, what is philosophy? You know, I think if someone can, like, if I can articulate something in a organized way and something that something is easily unpacked for them to um, absorb it and then maybe elevate their character or ability to, to cope with adversity or challenges, 
And that's kind of like the goal to be able to have the, you know, you have a person and then eventually you're going to have something that that person's going to have to go through. Uh, and so to have the, the, the awareness and the tools and the ability to deal with that, I mean, it's kind of simple, but the CC way uh, is, was pretty specific and it, it goes back to um, my own self like study. I've always kind of been into, into reading these books, you know, like the art of living, you know, meditations, the art of war, like those, the, the pretty standard list. Um, and those, those books ultimately are the ones I keep reading. I don't just read one, a book once. I need, every time I go through and read it, it's like a new book to me because I'm at a different point in my life and, and what I'm going through. So, uh, my dad got cancer when my son was, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first son. So this was going to be his first grandson. So he's fighting through cancer. He had like tongue and throat cancer, was smoking, like his face was swollen through Like he had, he had gone through a whole lot. Um, and my dad was the kind of dad that was like always my coach. Like he coached like, you know, always involved like in the sports aspect. And luckily I had a mom that helped with the others, like the school work and the school side. So, but he also was, came, you know, almost like this Irish stoic guy. So I never, like, I can, I remember like him crying twice. Uh, and he never was really articulate with his emotions. I didn't really know that much about his childhood. Um, we, were, we were like close, but there was a whole lot of stuff missing. And so at some point in time, it looked like he was not going to make it. And, and so it's a trippy thing because sometimes, you know, death builds up, which obviously it does for all of us. Sometimes it just happens right away. Um, sometimes you, it's coming, but you're not really, you don't admit it. And so in this particular case, cancer, like when the, when the chemo and the radiations and all the stuff wasn't working, it's like, okay, like it's not working. He, you're, he's going to die. And that is a weird like road to cross. So not only did I have that awareness, but then I had a conversation with him. And this is a hard conversation to have with your dad. Like dad, can you write to your grandson? Just start writing. Wow. So I was like, just start writing. Um, God, it's like eight years later, I still get all like choked up by it. Um, And telling him, was like, I'll give it to him when he's old enough. Like when he has the awareness, when he's like 18, I'll give it to him. So I was like, just start writing. Tell him whatever you want. Tell him about your childhood. Like, just start writing. And uh, then my son's born. A week later, I get a call from my mom. And she's calling, and all she's doing is apologizing. And she's apologizing, not because she's telling me that my dad died, but apologizing because he didn't finish writing. So my dad ended up writing, um, when he started writing, um, two paragraphs in on the iPad, he coughs up blood and died. 
And then, so eventually I get a hold of that iPad and even in those two paragraphs was information I never knew about him. He was like articulate with his emotions and those information about his childhood. And it was just so beautiful. And then gone. And so, you know, over time that kind of like changed how I, how open I am. And eventually I, I just kind of like let go. I'm like, I have to let it all go. I got to start writing. I got to start sharing stuff. Um, and I need to start making it public because I had, I had for a while, I was like, even social media, you know, growing up, even being in law enforcement, like the culture is to be quiet. Don't say anything. Yeah. Suffer in silence. Yeah. And you know, that's eventually not, not working. So a lot of, if you were to go and look at my, um, even my Instagram, now I share, like if something bubbles up and I have a, a thought, and I'll, I'll, I generally will write that emotion and I'll pull over, I'll stop and I'll just write and then I'll put it into a post. But a gigantic reason for not only the articulations on social media, but also on the podcast is in case something happens to me, I'm leaving stuff for my kids. And I've seen death happen in too many ways and I see how sudden it is and I see sometimes how slow it is and there's there's one thing for sure and that our time is not a guarantee and I know you know that but like we're not like I can go to the grocery store and not come back and that is a reality that I see all the time so having that and then trying to figure out like well how do I start leaving stuff for my kids like do I write on an iPad do I write in an email so for a long time I was trying to figure out how to do that even if you use like a evergreen app or something like that, like maybe that business goes, that goes out of business. Or if I, if I write in a book, like what if there's a fire or it gets lost or I don't know, even leaving files in a computer, what if the computer crashes? Like there's so many things I'm like, and so I was like, well, if I do social media or if I put it on the internet, by the time that they're a little older, they're going to find everything. Like they're going to be much better internet stuff than, than we ever are. And so I just started putting it out there. And then same thing with podcast. My first episode was titled For Dad. And it was just me. It was just me talking. And I, and I, I share some stories. Um, I share some poems about him or, or, or shared letters that I had actually written to him. And a lot of the stuff I was, that episode was also to leave that for my kids to find, to understand what happened with their grandfather. Turns out it also helped a lot of people throughout the world cope, deal with relationships with their parents. I, had, I mean, the, the feedback I've gotten from that one episode alone has been yeah. fantastic. Like, just, there was one example, a guy in South Korea hit me up and he's like, I just want you to know I reached out and I'm reconnected with my dad after 10 years of having a disagreement. Like, just stuff like that. Um, and so that type of thing is also why I use the, uh, the tulip and the skull and the hourglass and the whole memento Mori stuff on my social media posts. And a lot of the, uh, overall, a lot of the vibe I have going on. And it is that reminder that remember you will die. So having that little flicker of a thought helps you appreciate it now because nothing's guaranteed. So that is the backdrop for the CC way. What ended up happening with my second son um, is my wife got pregnant. 
and then about 20, 20 weeks, 21 weeks in, uh, you know, you do, we do these tests and then like, they're like, Oh, if you don't hear anything from us, like everything's fine. Well, we get a call. Um, we go in, turns out he was severely anemic. Um, and kind of long story short, there's something in my blood along the surface of my red blood cells that my wife doesn't have. It's called Kel. I'm Kel positive. Um, it's a rare thing. Uh, turns out, but it's not even a thing that you get tested for until like, until a situation like this. So 50% chance that that gets passed on to my kids with my wife. So my first kid turns out he got it. And at some point during the pregnancy, like some of his blood got into my wife, he came out fine. So now my wife started developing antibodies mm-hmm. for that. So baby two comes around, baby two, Kel positive. Now he's in an environment where mom's immune system is attacking his red blood cells and ability to create red blood cells. So essentially was dying. Like her immune system was, was, was killing the, the, the threat. So we had, a, we met with the doctor and we had to make a decision whether to like abort or to fight. And when he says fight, um, he had to know that there's a chance of uh, babies be blind, deaf, or some type of, you know, genetic disorder, all the things. There's a high risk. And the, the way we got through it was um, the way we'd continue is he would get, she would get intrauterine blood transfusions. So we'd go in, it was like the whole surgery thing, and the needle would go through the stomach, you know, into the womb, into a vein on a tiny little umbilical cord to, to do blood transfusions. So we came to a crossroads, like, what do you do in that, what do you do in that situation? It's kind of like, it's a weird position to ask a parent. So we decided to fight. Okay, we'll fight. We'll do it. Well, the surgery came up and uh, she had thought that he, the baby had passed because she hadn't felt any movement. And so we go in um, for the procedure and all she wanted to do was have the nurse or someone check to see if there was a heartbeat. Just tell me, is there a heartbeat? Luckily there was. Um, so she goes into the surgery. I'm in the waiting room and the eventually all the doctors come out walking towards me and she, the doctor had all the staff. So I was like, Oh, this isn't good. Like he's bringing support, like in case I go crazy. Well, he sits down. He's like, we could only do half the blood transfusion because the baby's blood was at a level of two. Basically the blood was like water. So they had to sedate, sedate the fetus and do half of it. And then we have to come back a week later. Because like that's how he was so anemic, and so his um, his uh, skull was like enlarged. There was fluid between the scalp and the brain. The heart was like two thirds the size of the chest. Like he was a mess. So we're in the car and we're all like defeated. Like, and then eventually we get home and we're sitting there on the couch and the TV's on, but we both have like thousand yard stare, just like like not like completely just defeated. And then all of a sudden she reaches over, bam, grabs my arm, pulls it over onto her stomach. And then I feel like the, like the, this is Sparta kick, bam, just on my hand. And that was the first time I felt, you know, that guy move and he hit me and it was like a jolt of energy, like electricity just flowed through me. And I was like, 
boom, that's it. We're going to make it. We're fighting. Everything's going to be fine. Just switched like completely like, like, like I don't think I've ever been as inspired by a human being as I was by that like 22 week old fetus. Like it was like, I don't know, take like the feeling you get watching a Rocky movie, but like multiply it. So, so we went through like, I don't know, five or six more of these surgeries. She was in um, labor and delivery for a month living there. Um, so I was working, trying to take care of my, my two and a half year old at the time. Uh, eventually he, when he was born, had to come out early. He had an APGAR score of two, his wasn't breathing, umbilical cord was all wrapped around. Well, APGAR score of one, sorry. Wasn't a good, like he's had it rough. But he has a strong will, like super strong will, which eventually is why we named him Connor. Because mm. so, so he, he fought through and had that like strength and determination in the face of adversity. And so with him in this process, and then he's been in and out of the hospital, like I said, with breathing, we've been, he's been in the hospital like uh, three times, I think, four. There's been a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on with him. But he's strong and he's made the best of all of these opportunities. And so this coupled with my son and having that, that resilient little spirit helped with the, even calling it the Sisu way. And having that type of like, that unconquerable soul, right? And that, that, that indomitable spirit. And that's tied in. So he's even, so initially I got the poster. It was just Sisu. I had all this, the poster, like, that's actually on my website, similar. And I had it up in our living room. So every time we left, it was a reminder. And so this is where this, this whole thing transformed and kind of like got in a melting pot. And, and then me coupled with my creative outlet and how to cope with even my own stuff and cope with stuff at work. And, and that's why I even say on the interviews or on the openings that I love to connect with unconquerable souls. Because people like you, we all have these stories out there. And again, we are what we've overcome. And so these are the stories that, that I like to tell and to share. And honestly, the, it, it, within my own like creative outlet, I have solo episodes. Like I covered um, stuff on the four agreements with Don Miguel Ruiz. I've covered some stoicism. I've contrasted that with the Toltec philosophy with Don Miguel. Uh, I've had um, a grief episode. I've covered some Martin Luther King stuff on a sermon that he did called loving your enemies. So I'm, I've having my own, like, it's almost like doing my own like book reports, but like on a podcast, but it's kept me, it's kept me as a student. It's another thing I like about it. It's constantly pushing and, and staying in student mode. Right. And the, the thing too is, and everyone, if you're listening, go subscribe, go subscribe to Sisu way, go check out everything. He's got amazing shirts, amazing. Uh, he's got frame tenants, of the Sisu way and these ideas. And that's why you and I connect so well because we're cut from the same cloth. The people that I know that truly live philosophy are the ones that are not just spouting off adversity as a gift, the obstacles of the way, yada, yada, yada. They're literally living it because it means something to them. So that's a very compelling why for your father. And I love that you are not waiting to start writing. I love that you're not waiting until there's no other option for you. And so you had this huge opportunity. Again, you're writing to your, your kids, you're writing to your father, but in so doing, you're helping the world. And that connection is what we need more of. 
and that fearless ability to look at our inadequacies, that ability to look at us warts and all and see, man, I'm not doing well here. I had a bad day and it's not just a bad day. It's there's something else that's going on. And by you standing up and talking about it and not being afraid to, to open that up, that's going to, your courage will empower so many people. And it, it obviously is, it's doing it for millions. And this conversation, you being so raw and just transparent is awe-inspiring to me. So I... Well, thank you. I mean, I, I would like to say that, that even in, in the way I write, at no point in time have I thought, like, oh, I'm going to try and be inspiring, right? And that's not, I'm not, try, I'm not trying to be motivating or inspiring. If, if somebody feels that way, like, if you feel inspired, that decision is yours, and, right? Like, if I have this, a, a piece of art that I, I did this painting, and this is what the painting means to me. Like you can come in and have a totally different feeling, but that's, that's how you feel. So that's something I think is important, and I tell people, it's like, I'm not like a motivational or inspiring guy. I'm, I'm a guy that's like trying to make it through life the best that I can and help people along the way. But that's where the connection is. I, I'm the same yeah. way. I'm not trying to inspire people. Yeah. I try to keep most of my stuff laconic and simple. Some of it has to be more eloquent because that's how I can permeate into people so that it gets beyond some of that so that they actually will listen. But in the end, we're trying to accomplish this goal, this mission to help people. And just like with you, the right people find us. And usually they find us at the right time. Mm-hmm. So yep. Scott, I can't thank you enough, brother, for being here, for doing what you do, for the work you do, not only in the public sector, protecting others, but trying to protect the, the mental health and the physicality of other people with your writings, with your work, with the podcast. And uh, I look forward to many more discussions in the future, whether they be recorded on a podcast or whether they just be in person or on the phone, my friend. So where's the best way for us to hear more and learn more about you and what you're, you're working on with the Sisu way and the Sisu movement. Well, uh, my Instagram is at Scott McGee. Um, kind of easy. Uh, I, I very much do my best to stay on top of like any direct message I get. Um, cause I don't feel any different than anybody else out there. If someone shoots me a message, like I'm going to respond to you and try and do my best to do it quickly. Uh, there's also, um, Instagram and Facebook page at the Sisu way and it's S I S U. Uh, that's what, uh, how you spell Sisu. Um, the podcast, the Sisu way is on all the platforms. I haven't had an episode in the last few months and I don't look at that as a bad thing either. Um, I do an episode where I'm overwhelmed with the passion and I feel like I need to do it over time. Uh, I, I don't like, I, I personally, don't want to do any episode where I feel stressed like I need to do it. I ride, I, I don't stifle the passion. Uh, I don't stifle that generous impulse or anything. So I, that's how I do those, um, those episodes. I'm just overwhelmed. I need to do it. Yeah. You're um, a quality, you're a quality over quantity guy like I am. And that's, that's where the magic is. That's where the power is. There's, there are people that can be fooled by superfluousness and, you know, bullshit flattery, but the people that we're trying to connect to are the ones that are actually, they want that, they want that substance. And if it yeah. takes them a month or two to get a new episode, so be it because they'll wait for yep. it yep. because it's, it's worth it. Yeah. And it's also 
the like the way I do episodes, I pour. I, I, that's the best job that I can do in that moment in that podcast, and I do that out of respect for the guests and the listeners. Like, it, and that takes a lot of time to really prepare for. It does. And you know, I got work going on, and then family. And so right now with COVID going on, my kids are home all the time. And so I, I'm aware of that attention currency and I want to make sure I'm available for them. So, and I don't feel bad at all about it because the podcast will be right there, ready to go when I'm ready to hit record. Yep. But that's why I love doing stuff like this. Now this doing these type of interviews with you who you get to do the research and prep. And it's just, as you know, it's much easier to come on as a guest. It absolutely is. But the beautiful thing is I got to meet you in person. I got to experience yep. you. We got to sweat together. I got to be interviewed by you. And again, you are very meticulous. And I've been interviewed, you know, over a hundred times and yours stands out in my mind because of that connection, because of that real questioning, as opposed to just saying, so blah, 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 blah. What's your favorite color? You know, I, I, I don't oh, have yeah. time for that in my life. And well, I know thank you for know. noticing. Of course, of course. I mean, for those of you that don't know, he had his, his pen and pad out there and it was like he was going directly where he needed and he wanted to make sure that he connected everything. And here's the part of it that people don't see as an interviewer. There's an art to that. There is an art to being able to be present and then saying, wow, this is powerful. I would like to take it this direction. Or there's a part of it that's like, so tell us about when you died, Marcus. Wow, that's horrible. So what's your favorite food? Uh, again, there's no continuity there, but by being able to do those things and then weave them seamlessly into your philosophy, into what you're working on, into what you do every day, that is the sign of a great interviewer. So thank you for that time. Well, thank you. And for your listeners, it's on, on the CCU way. It's episode um, 34. Oh, awesome. In which and, you were on. And we'll link, we'll link all this stuff in the show notes, my oh, friends. Perfect. So outstanding awesome. listen i want to be respectful of your time thank you again and uh, like i said i look forward to talking to you again soon my friend awesome thank you brother thank you brother